Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And they had a prophet guy come in there and he said, um, too, if we left the church, we would be cursed. And so then me and my brother were like, yeah, we're going to take our chances. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm so thrilled to bring you my guest today, John McRae of the What Do You Meme YouTube channel. This is one of my favorite YouTube channels that you definitely have to check out. He talks about theological topics. He does cultural commentary, great apologetics, critical thinking. So check out the What Do You Meme YouTube channel. John, I'm so glad to have you on with me today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Well, I want to introduce my my viewers who may not be familiar with you yet a little bit to uh, to just give us a little picture of who you are and what you do. I know that you're not just a YouTube, very successful YouTuber, but what else do you do? And, and tell us about your family and your life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so my name is John, and um, I started my YouTube channel about, I think it was actually three years ago in December. And um, prior to that, I did a lot of debates with atheists online. And so um, eventually, long story short, I ended up um, starting a YouTube channel and then started doing a lot of atheist responses. And lately it's kind of more morphed into a lot of cultural type stuff. So I want to kind of give like a thoughtful Christian perspective to things that are going on in culture. So um, yeah, so that's kind of what I do. Um, I have a wife and two kids and one on the way. And so um, a blessed man. Blessed and busy, blessed and busy. Yeah. So yeah. you um, you did not grow up in the church, which is is a very interesting part of your backstory because a lot of apologists, you hear kind of a similar story. They grew up in church, their faith was challenged, they discovered apologetics and, and went into that, but you didn't actually come from that world. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and then about maybe the first church experience that you had, because I know that was that had a significant impact on you, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, yeah, so I didn't grow up in like a church growing home or anything like that. My parents never even talked about like God or Christianity, um, hardly ever. Like my mom would say stuff sometimes, though. She would say stuff like, um, you know, kind of like pray for to get something, you know, I mean, that sort of thing. But it was very rare. We never had any conversations about God or anything like that. Um, then when I was 15, my aunt introduced me to, um, um, to the church for the first time. And so I went to a church um, with her. And it was such a bizarre experience for me in a lot of different ways, because I walked in and I saw these people that seemed to be really united on something that was greater than themselves. And that was really kind of appealing to me because I just haven't seen anything like that. You know, I mean, you see some people unite over like sports or something like that, but something like transcendent like that yeah. uh, was really intriguing to me. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of so I started going there and I went there for about a year. And the longer I stayed there, the longer I kind of had more negative experiences. Um, there was a lot of rules that they had. You know, they would talk really bad about people who were outside of the church, you know, like everybody's like this devil, you know, and um, mm. they would talk about these immoral things that these people would do. And it made me feel uncomfortable because 
I realized that like a lot of the immoral things that they would talk about from these like wicked outsiders were things that I was like secretly doing. So mm. it was like uncomfortable because I was like, man, I can't be perfect. And they had so many rules and it seemed like it would just go, the rules would just get more and more and more each week I came um, to the youth group and stuff. There'd be so, more rules. But what were the rules like uh-huh. that you're talking about? Because it sounds like kind of this extreme version of legalism. Give, give us an example yeah. of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like one of the more absurd ones now looking back on it, you know, then I didn't think much of it because, you know, it's just kind of like, hmm, you know, so, uh, but one of the more extreme ones is that like, you know, they were talking about how we shouldn't eat Lucky Charms because um, about like Lady Luck, they used to be saying that like Lady Luck and then that's part of the cult and therefore if we eat Lucky Charms, we're partaking in the cult and stuff like that. So that's like one of the more extreme ones. Um, wow. Obviously, you know, the big no-nos, you know, don't drink, smoke, drugs, party, um, don't date, you know what I mean? Um, you know, so it's just like a lot of kind of more extreme type things yeah. um, and some of the, you know, things that most Christians accept, but they added a lot onto that as well. Yeah. Wow. So what caused you to to leave that church? Yeah. So eventually, like, so I was kind of more agnostic and then I was like believing and then like as the church kind of went on, I became a little bit more agnostic. And now when I look back through the people that I know that um, used to go to that church, most of them are like agnostic or non-believers or yeah. something like that now, too. But yeah, so um, me and my brother decided we're like, yeah, this is, you know, it's not for us. You know what I mean? And it was just kind of weird. And it kept getting weirder and weirder with some of the stuff. To me, it was my perception. It was weirder and weirder with some of the supernatural type stuff. Um, and they had a prophet guy come in there and he said, um, too, if we left the church, we would be cursed. And mm-hmm. so then me and my brother were like, yeah, we're going to take our chances. And so so we ended up leaving the church. Wow. Yeah. So how did you get from there? Because that, that seems like that that's an experience that would sour a lot of people to even going back to any kind of a church. What was it in you that wanted to continue seeking? Or was there something in you that wanted to continue seeking? How did you uh, go from that place to finding a good church? And and I don't know, You, I think you mentioned you maybe yeah. were more agnostic at that time. So what led you to Christ, essentially? Yeah, so essentially, like, I found myself kind of in this weird spot where I was like, some days I was like, there's got to be something greater out there. And then other days I'd be like, yeah, there's nothing out there. We're all alone in this vast, empty universe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would kind of oscillate a lot. And I'm not sure how many people relate to that. But for me, that was the case. I would oscillate a lot. Um, and then eventually um, I went to college and I was just starting at a community college. And I wanted to um, take a class on world religion um, so that way I can just kind of think more about it because I always kind of found it intriguing. And then the, cl- uh, the world religion class was full. And so they're like, well, you can take a philosophy of religion class. And then so when I took the philosophy of religion class, I had no idea what philosophy was. But that was the first time I actually came across like intellectual reasons to believe in God in the first place. And then so from then on, I mean, I uh, once I um, came across the Kalam cosmological argument, I mean, it just made sense to me. And it's still my favorite argument to this day. And I still think it's convincing. And I debated it for years with atheists. I've heard probably, I think, every objection to it, you know, but I still find it personally convincing. And so that was put me on the path of believing in God. Well, that's interesting that you would bring up the Kalam cosmological argument, because even to this day, when I kind of wake up and think, 
are we all crazy? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. is this real? Yeah. Is this right yeah. and true? Yeah. It's that one that really yeah. just brings, like, when I kind of go back through all of my beliefs, I'm like, the kind of the buck stops there. And so just, I know this really isn't yeah. kind of part of our discussion today, but it might be helpful for yeah. some viewers who are like, what are they talking about? This like big yeah. words like Kalam Cosmo. Give us just sort of a, an overview of what that argument is, because like you, this is one that I found really convincing early in my journey of kind of going through doubt. Um, and, and I just, you know, I was kind of backing up from, okay, I'm not even going to worry about Christianity or Jesus until I know if I can have good reasons that God himself exists. And so this is an argument that is, it's not going to get you to, you know, the truthfulness of Christianity per se, or, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, but it, it gives such a strong argument for the existence of not just any kind of God, but, uh, you know, a personal being who, uh, is all powerful. And so, so give us a little bit of an overview of what that that is for people who may be scratching their heads going, what is that? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So the basic argument is, in a nutshell, it's just like everything that begins to exist has a cause. And then the second part of the argument is the universe began to exist. And by universe, it's defined there to mean all of time, space, and matter. And arguments are made from philosophy and from modern science and that sort of thing. And then so if everything that begins to exist has a cause and the universe has a cause, then that cause would, because it created all time, space, and matter, it would have to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. And so that's kind of like it in a nutshell. Um, but yeah, you get into deeper parts, you know, of course, with the different premises and stuff, but that's the basic kind of idea. So often people, when they hear that, their first thought is, okay, well, you're, if, if the universe had to have a cause, well, then God has to have a cause. So who created God? How would you answer just kind of that first objection that I'm sure comes to a lot of people's minds? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to answer that objection. But the basic idea is that like, God was never, um, so the, you, uh, the first premise says everything that begins to exist has a cause, and God didn't begin to exist. So therefore, he wouldn't need a cause. And that's not really backwards reasoning. There's like different ways to kind of go about it. But um, one way to kind of think about it, too, is like, you have to get to a place where whatever created the, the universe would have to be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. So therefore that thing, because it's timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, then it didn't have a beginning. And so then you can say that that is the first cause. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, very good. Okay, so that was that was a little fun kind of rabbit trail there on the cosmological yeah. argument. So you came to the conclusion that was true, and you're realizing, okay, God exists. How did you get to Christianity from, from there? Yeah. So, um, so after I became convinced that God existed, you know, this is when I became intellectually convinced because there was times when I would float in and out of it, you know, but to become concretely like intellectually convinced, then I wanted to know if God was revealed in any of the other kind of religions today. And so like, I went on this journey where I was going to every church I could find, you know, and so I went to like, you know, the Mormon church, um, the, um, um, Jehovah Witness Church. I even went to the Church of Scientology. I went to huh. all of these different churches and I would just go there and just keep asking people questions, you know? And so like, it was weird. I would just keep asking people like, why do you believe that your religion is true and not other religions? Because that's qu at core what I was trying to understand, like why one religion and not the other? And um, so long story short, um, I would, in advance, I'd go try to prepare um, a little bit in advance to kind of get an idea of what they believed in stuff. And I stumbled across the evidence for the resurrection. And then that's when I started going down this kind of rabbit trail of like looking at all this evidence and stuff and trying to make it make sense 
um, to explain it away, you know, outside of God. Mm. And so it's like, so if we have these core facts that historians um, typically agree on, what's the best hypothesis that explains these facts uh, without it being ad hoc or, or something like that, without trying to find a way for it to, to um, in other words, just trying not to find like a, make up a reason in order to reject it. Um, so anyways, um, by doing that, I just couldn't think of anything else. I genuinely couldn't. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it too, read a lot of different objections. And I said, none of this other stuff really makes sense. It doesn't really explain these facts. And so then that's when I became, where I um, came to a point where I intellectually started to be convinced that Christianity was true. And then after that, I started debating in order to kind of solidify, kind of check my points and stuff to see like what I was missing and if I really yeah. believed it and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Very cool. So then at some point you, you decide Christianity is true. What was the moment for you when you were just like, I'm all in, I'm giving my life to Christ? Was there a church involved yeah. with that? Or was that something that just happened on your own? Uh, and then, you know, did you eventually find churches that were a little bit less kind of, you know, out there than that first church that you had found? Yeah. Um, so that was, for me, it was more of like a, a journey as well, too. Like during this time when I was doing a lot of the debates and stuff, that's when this the belief for me really started to solidify. And like everybody else, too, you have these points of doubt where you're just like, you know, like kind of how you said, you're like, is this really true? Are we just deceiving ourselves or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? What's going on? But I honestly, um, genuinely at that time, too, like during this process, I didn't care if Christianity was true or false. I just wanted to know what was true eventually. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, that was really where and a lot of like debating with the atheists and stuff online and taking my time to really research, you know what I mean? All these different points and reading all these books and all these things um, is where it really started to kind of solidify for me more and more. Um, it wasn't until I internalized the gospel uh, message that that's when my life, I feel like, really began to change a lot more. But that was a process as well of really battling through the scriptures, you know, trying to study and figure out like what this really says, then understanding God's grace, um, internalizing that more and more is what really led to like a, a personal change for me. Yeah. And I think that when I watch, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time even this morning, I, I love watching your videos. And so just because I knew we were going to be talking today, I, I just watched a, a few of them this morning. And one of the things that really strikes me about you is how eloquent you are at describing grace. You are so gifted at helping people understand what grace is. And I'd love um, to have you maybe just, just give a basic definition of grace. And then I want to take that yeah. and kind of compare that with what I think uh, a lot of maybe people that don't understand grace might think about it or they might recharacterize it or, or or think wrongly about it but but what is in just the most simplest terms what is what is grace which is really the core message of the gospel yeah absolutely um grace is it's an unmerited gift an unearned gift right so uh, paul makes this distinction in romans 3 i think 4 through 5 um where he says like it's better for you not to work because um if you work, or actually, I'm sorry, let's go to Romans 11, 6 instead. So Romans 11, 6, where Paul makes a distinction there, where he says, if it's by works, it's no longer grace. He says, if it's grace, it's a free gift, is paraphrasing here. If it's grace, it's a free gift. And therefore, if you add works, it's no longer grace the moment you add works. So if I give you a gift and then you pay me for it, you know, that's not a gift. That's a paycheck. That's the point mm -hmm. Paul makes in, in, in Romans in Romans 4, 4 or um, three, four, yeah. uh, one of which, but he's like, yeah, that's called a paycheck, right? So if you earn it, it's a paycheck, but we have this, uh, where Jesus comes into our world 
right? Um, God puts on human flesh, comes into our world and dies in our place so that way we can be seen with the righteousness of Christ rather than us being um, seen by our righteousness, which is filthy rags, according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we have this imputed righteousness is what the word is called. We have this imputed righteousness on us where we're seen as if we did everything right. And then Christ gives us that gift so that way we can be seen as if we did everything right before the Father. So yeah, so the basic idea of grace is just that it's an undeserved gift. And that's drastically different than we see in any other religion. And it's drastically different from what we see in even a lot of people giving messages that are marketed as Christian. You know, I think that sometimes yeah. we hear people saying, well, if you do this, God will do this. If you yeah. um, if you pray enough, if you're good enough, if you, uh, you know, are, are pious enough and committed enough and, and obedient enough, God will love you more or he will give you all these blessings. You know, if you if you really commit your life to Christ, he's going to bless you with, a, you know, a beautiful home and cars and things. I mean, this is kind of what the seeds of the prosperity gospel are. And uh, you talked in one of your videos about a term that I hear all the time in progressive Christianity in particular, and that's this reference to something called the transactional gospel. Now, I've actually heard this phrase defined a couple of different ways. Uh, one way they'll use it is to say uh, kind of what you were responding to in the in the video commentary you did on the viral video of Lisa Gunger talking about their story of pastoring a mega church, and everybody can find that on YouTube. It's easy to find uh, that. But she was basically saying that, like her faith was really rad when she saw a lot of suffering in the world or, or when her, I think it was her cousin that wasn't healed after everybody had prayed so hard. And I've heard story after story from people who ended up going into the progressive Christian kind of mindset because they were told that, you know, God will answer all your prayers if you have enough faith, or he will bless you with um, healing and health and wealth if you do all these, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. And so she became disillusioned by that. And so she says, that's that's a transactional gospel. And so I think in a, there's something in her that reacted against that rightly. You know, she's like, that can't be right. But th the sad thing is that often they'll throw the gospel out with it. But I wonder if you, and then the other, well, I'll, I'll say the other one. So the other way that they'll refer to the transactional gospel is sort of a, a mischaracterization of substitutionary atonement. So they'll say, you know, so many Christians think that all they have to do is just get their little get out of hell free card because Jesus made this transaction and that's the transactional gospel. So we can maybe talk about both of those in turn, but comment if you would on that first version, um, because you did that so well in the video you made and we'll, and we'll even in the podcast notes and everything link to that video so people can watch that as well. But um, comment on that transactional gospel that Lisa Younger was talking about in her video. Yeah. Um, so, and this is common too, um, just like you said, it's kind of a common conception that a lot of Christians may have for one way or, or for one reason or another. But deep down, uh, uh, most people, I think, because the world is constructed this way, we think that we have to earn everything that we get, right? So um, if you're going to get a diploma, you have to work really hard, you're going to get this job, you earn it, you know, with these credentials, that sort of thing. Um, so this is kind of a common misunderstanding. Now, on the one end of it, it leads to um, shame, right? Just like it was in the Lisa Gunger situation where they felt like they were doing everything right and things were still going wrong in their lives. And then, so like, what's the conclusion there? That either I'm more messed up or um, God doesn't exist. That's kind of the logical conclusion there if you believe that it is a transaction where it's all about um, putting in so that way you can get back. Um, but on the other end too, it leads to um, 
um, I think ultimately it will lead to selfishness as well, because then when it comes to salvation and all these things, you're doing these things so that way you can be saved. You know, um, it's not, you're not doing them necessarily, or I guess fully because um, you're trying to help other people necessarily, or you're trying to just please God, you know, instead you're doing it because you want to save your own butt. Right. And so um, in the end, the, the, it looks like it's moral, um, but in the end, it actually becomes immoral because you're you're being trained for selfishness. Now, um, it, in Christianity, if you believe that what um, that you're saved because of what Christ did, and He gives this to you as a gift that you accept, then you're already accepted. So now you can start doing the the good things and the right things for the right reasons. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because you want to honor God and you want to love others, and you know all of those type of reasons. And so it takes away that kind of selfish nature where you're just trying to earn salvation. Because that's not you know if you have salvation already, then you're the cup is clean from the inside, as Jesus would say. So um, that's what I think is the problem there. Now on the other end, to go to your second question. Um, is this does this mean that this is just a license to be lazy or license to sin? And I think that progressives probably um, rightly um, complain. I would assume at Christians who you know say, "Okay, I'm saved. I don't have to do anything in the world now." You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. That's the right complaint because if we now our life after we're saved is about loving our neighbors and honoring God, right? And so we don't honor God or love our neighbors when we're just like being lazy and not trying to like do something, you know what I mean, in in the world, you know, that sort of thing. But the misconception is thinking that that merits salvation, which I think that the gospel clearly states you don't merit salvation by being uh, moral or trying to be moral, you know, or doing these things in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this is something that I've seen that a misunderstanding of grace is at the root of so many false teachings and false gospels, because it can take on different forms, it can take on different language, but at the core, it's this it's this misunderstanding of grace, and often what we see in the progressive church, sadly, is they leave one form of sort of that moralism for another. They, they might rightly recognize, hey, I can't earn my salvation, I can't ever be good enough, and but then, you know, of course, in the progressive church, the gospel almost becomes like um, this, like social justice warriors and, and things like that, and so it almost becomes becomes moralism on the other side of things, which is kind of sad because often they're trading one for the other. Um, But, you know, often I see also this sort of charge about this transactional type of gospel in reference to Jesus dying on the cross. Like, to them, it's like a cheap... It's a cheap way to go about looking at atonement. It's like, oh, oh, Jesus died on the cross. All you have to do is put your trust in him and you're saved. And like, and kind of like what you were hinting at, the result of even the other kind of transactional gospel, it ends up with, well, you just can do whatever you want. Well, that can't be right. And and so I think it's interesting to note that in the gospel, in the core of the gospel with this atonement that Jesus achieved on the cross, there is a transaction there. It's his life for mine. Um, It's not only a transaction, though. It's like if we think about so many other things in our lives, even a marriage relationship, um, you know, there are transactions that happen, but it's not just a transaction. And so there's so much more. There's love and there's relationship and there's care and growth and all of these things. And so uh, I I think that that, that's an interesting way. It's interesting that that word keeps coming up transactional and I think it both of those seem to be rooted in a misunderstanding of grace 
And I love an analogy you gave in one of your videos. I wonder if you can share it with us, where you talk about an atheist who stands before God, final judgment, he's died, and he's kind of complaining because, and I may be getting this wrong, but he's complaining because um, he says, well, I never had a chance to read the Bible, and so you're going to hold me accountable to the morals that are in the Bible. And, and I love the way you kind of describe God's response in this metaphor. I wonder if you could share it with us. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so that kind of idea for that metaphor, I, I believe, comes from like Romans 1 and 2, particularly, um, maybe some of 3. <laughs> but um, anyways, like um, the idea there is like the atheist that dies or just whoever it is dies. Um, and then they're like, you know, well, God, well, this isn't fair that I'm going to be judged based off of the Ten Commandments them in a book that I didn't even read or that I didn't believe in while on earth. And then God says to him, well, okay, um, I won't judge you based off of the standards that you're going to believe in when you're on earth. I'll just judge you by your standards. And so God pulls out this like tape recorder and then plays back all of the times where you said that um, people shouldn't do anything, all the things you got morally outraged about in life. You know, you say, oh, you shouldn't judge other people or you shouldn't tell other people what to think or any of the things that you say to people over and over, right? Um, so any of those things that you say, God took a list and then he's just like, okay, I'll hold you accountable to these things. Now, how do you think you did? You know, and the truth is like, if we're pretty like introspective and reflective, we'll realize that like, we're always failing even on our own standards. You know what I mean? And so yeah. like the way, the way I think about it is like, um, kind of like how Paul makes arguments in Romans one and two, where he's like, um, these people who believe that they're going to, they want to be judged by the law. Okay, you'll be judged by the law, but you're going to fail, you know, and then he goes to these different scenarios. And no matter how you dice it, you're going to fail on these things because you can't even live up to your own standards. And so the point of that is to show people that, like, um, there's a problem. And if you don't believe there's a problem, then you don't need to be saved. Right. Um, you know, but if you see that there's a problem that even according to your own standards, you'll be condemned by then you'll start realizing that like you need something other than yourself in order to um you know to not be condemned by those standards. Yeah, that's it was such a helpful metaphor as I was listening to that. I was like, man, that's so well put because it even it's like it takes away all the ammunition to say, you know, well I didn't know or I I I never heard or something along those lines. Um, so you've done some research into deconstruction, and um, I, I'm kind of swinging around to get to, you made this really popular post about progressive Christianity, and um, but I want to start by talking about, you did some research into deconstruction. What were some insights you gleaned from from doing some of that research? Yeah, um, so there's a couple of things, but one of the main things that jumped out at me as I was reading the reasons why people deconverted was the fact that so many people deconverted behind these assumptions that weren't even biblical in the first place. They're kind of just like these things that they've heard in church or that are assumed in culture or something like that, but they weren't biblical assumptions. Um, so like, um, the, the you know, one of the main assumptions is kind of what we touched on earlier is where people believe that if I do these good things, then God is going to bless me. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and so my life is going to be good. If I convert to Christianity, then life is going to be good. And to be fair, I mean, I know that came a lot from some people who do evangelism and um, missionary type stuff. You know, sometimes they'll say that where you want your life to be great, you know, come to Christianity. But it's kind of weird because when I read the Bible, I, I didn't have those same assumptions because I was like, man, the people who went to um, converted to Christianity and stuff and the people who followed Christ and, um, you know, anybody probably that you can think of in the Bible for the most part had a pretty rough time. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Even the greatest man to ever live, obviously, Jesus, God in the flesh, um, he, um, he had 
he suffered in this world too. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. like my assumption wasn't there, but I realized that most people it seemed like had some sort of assumption that, um, you know, their life is going to be great just because they're saved. And we're just not promised that, I don't think, because Jesus even said in this life, you will have these trials and tribulations. So we're to expect the opposite. So that was one of the big ones, because in one way or another, people would always be saying that in their stories, like, yeah. you know, um, why, you know, I, I converted and then these bad things still happened in my life, you know? So that was one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot more, but I yeah. don't know if you want to go into those or not, but. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I would like to hear a little more about it because just in my experience of listening to different deconstruction stories and listening to podcasts where people are either in the process of deconstruction or fully deconstructed, and now I've noticed even in just the last maybe month, uh, there are several platforms that are actually offering to help you deconstruct, like, like come, we'll help you deconstruct. We'll guide you through your deconstruction process. And so this is a huge thing right now in culture. It's a huge thing for people who have had experiences with the church that were negative in some way. Like you mentioned, uh, they didn't get what they thought they were going to get from it. And in my book, I lay out a few of those reasons. One of those is that, that problem of trying to reconcile the bad things they see in the world with us saying that God is good. Uh, Other reasons would be kind of what you described in your church background, that first church you went to, where hyper-legalism, where they were adding things to Scripture. You know, you mentioned that uh, you were told Lucky Charms was somehow demonic because there was occultic symbols in it or something along those lines. And I know people, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, because there's a couple people in my life who were told, even as children, if you wear shorts, you know, you're not going to go to heaven. Or if if the rapture happens and you're in a bowling alley or a movie theater, you're not going to happen. I know people that were weren't even allowed to go inside of a movie theater because it was demonic inside of there or something along those lines. And so I think that there are reasons like that. Of course, people go through abusive situations. There's all kinds of reasons, but it, but the, the sort of common thread is that it seems to be just this negative experience they had in church. And so, so in your research, you've found the one that's sort of not getting what you were promised or, or th- maybe even questioning the moral character of God because he s- seems to say this is going to happen if you do this and then it didn't happen. What were some other uh, things you found in your research? Yeah, no, that that was all good too. And this is why I think it kind of ties back to doctrine as well too because uh, when people don't have a clear idea of why we're saved, this is why grace is so important. Mm. If you don't know why we're saved, then it's like everything else becomes like up for grabs. So like people will add in these works and stuff like this and whatever kind of works they think that don't condemn them. You know what I mean? Yeah. That they feel like they can say other people are wrong for, these people are going to hell because they, uh, whatever, you know, vote this way or because they um, dress this way or, yeah, I mean, you know, you've heard it all. And the reason why is because as soon as we have works into the gospel, then it, the gospel instantly gets confusing. Mm. And then everybody has this different set and everybody's just competing against like, well, these works, you know what I mean? Well, my yeah. works. And then they're just arguing about where to place them and then what kind of works and how many, that sort of thing too. So um, so anyways, I think that like in these experiences like this too, a lot of people are um, hurt from the experience they had because they felt like they were let down. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like they had these expectations that things are going to be this way. And then they feel they how the system is made when it is that transaction thing, then it makes them feel bad when things go wrong. And they feel like, you know, they're the problem mm-hmm. uh, because things are going wrong in life. And so it kind of solidifies that kind of um, um, hurt 
And then the people who are there to try to help them and fix them typically aren't the church, right? Because mm -hmm. the church has the assumption, you know, this happened in the Lisa Gunger situation where the church had the same assumption. They're like, what are you guys doing while yeah. you guys keep getting these bad things happening in your life? So they can't go to the people in church. So the only people who understand, they feel like the people who understand are going to be the people who are outside the church, usually the atheist agnostics or, um, you know, or the people who just want to help them deconvert. Mm -hmm. um, for or deconstruct for whatever reason. So, and it seems like, um, you know, in progressive Christianity, it's, it's really, it's people who there's something inside them that wants to hang on to Jesus. You know, right. it's like they've, they've had this bad experience, but there's a reason even I was really kind of touched reading Lisa's book and, and hearing her journey going all the way to where she, I think she declared atheism for a day, but she's just, there was right. something in her that is is still like I want to know Jesus. I know there's more, and so I, I actually, you know, I pray for people because I think that there's something in them that knows that God is real. They know that Jesus is the way. They've a lot of times redefined Jesus uh, to to look a lot like themselves, which is, you know, I think we all have the tendency to do that. But um, but yeah, and and this kind of brings it back around to the prosperity gospel because I I've known people who you know, maybe got sick and they prayed and believed with all their heart that they were going to be healed. And they were told this, this means you don't have enough faith. This means, and, and so it's always on you. It's more work, more work to be done. And I think that that yeah. is such a setup for people to end up deconstructing to humanism, atheism, agnosticism, or some version of progressive Christianity, and which is why your story is so intriguing because you, you had, you know, I think that on the spectrum of unusual and kind of negative church experiences. Everybody, everybody's had a bad church experience. You know, if you've grown up in right, church, yeah, yeah. you've had a stinker pastor yeah. somewhere, you've had a bad, you know, something. But yours kind of, it's it's like in the uniquely, like Lucky Charms being a sin is, is kind of on the far end of the spectrum of kind of a, a negative experience. So it seems like you had the perfect setup to kind of just leave that yeah. and go, Psh, that's all junk. I'm not even into this Jesus or Christian thing. Why do you think that wasn't the case for you? Well, it, it kind of was the case. Like okay. after we left that church, like both of us kind of went more agnostic. And my, my brother, um, he's still agnostic, um, probably leaning. Uh, some, actually, I don't know. He's probably leaning more away from atheism now. But anyways, um, that's that's what happens typically in these sorts of churches. So what happened for me was like, and, and I really was on this kind of truth seeking journey or truth seeking journey too. Um, but eventually, like that's why it was... Um, kind of like, you know, I, I want to say it's like a miracle that I got into philosophy of religion classes because this actually helped me know that like I can know this, you know what mm. I mean? Um, and so like being able to say like, okay, now I can know this is true one way or another because I didn't care wherever the chips fell. I just wanted them to fall somewhere, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? But like saying that, okay, now I feel, you know, I, I can come to this kind of uh, settlement in my mind um, felt really good, you know, because it um, I'm a skeptic too. So like I relate to like obviously a lot of the atheist stuff because of the experiences and the skepticism. Um, but, um, yeah, being skeptical and stuff like that, I, it took a lot of skepticism, but I still believe that like, you know, this just makes the most sense. But, um, so it started there, but yeah, eventually too, it's like, um, when I did come across the, um, the progressive Christianity type stuff, what I came to think about was like, I don't want to accept something because it makes me feel good, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I see people doing this all the time, and that's what helped is I saw people doing this all the time. And um, particularly, I want to say in like a postmodern culture, which mm -hmm. I think that we're in a culture that's more postmodern, um, 
most people, the way that they come to know what's true and what's not true is based off of how they feel or their personal experiences, right? And so when that's the case, uh, when it's like, especially if it's somebody's personal experience, like um, I'm all for, you, you know, you can have personal experiences, that sort of thing. But I don't know if it was God. I don't know if it was you. I don't know if it was the devil. I don't know what the origin of your experience was per se. So we have to have something additional to be able to say, like, it does this correspond with um, external reality, not just in my mind, but the rest of reality as well. Um, because I think when Jesus was convincing people and stuff too, these miracles weren't just in people's internal subconscious, you know, there was miracles that were external that other people could see and stuff mm. as well too. And the, the resurrection you can verify as well too, you know, it's uh, yeah. verifiable. So, um, but anyways, I think from that, I realized that like, um, at least from what I understand about progressive Christianity and the progressive Christians I've talked to and that sort of thing is that they have a lot of views that tend to coincide with the uh, postmodern aspect of things. So like even basing everything off of love, that's great, you know, but love is not a feeling biblically, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so like we have this agape love where it's a commitment rather than a feeling. And so that drastically changes things because a lot of times when I hear them say love, they're talking about inclusiveness and stuff like this, um, be, um, you know, like accepting everybody and stuff because of love. But in reality, it's like this conception of love that is so postmodernized that it doesn't really represent the biblical account of love. Now, don't get me wrong, like uh, loving people, you know, or making people feel good is, is a good thing a lot of times. So sometimes it's not a good thing, you know, mm. in cases where a child, you know, my, my child would be happy if I let them eat, you know, uh, ice cream for every meal, yeah. you know what I or mean? Or do but that's screens not all day long. They would be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, so you'd feel very good for a little while at least, you know, but, <laughs> but that's the thing is we want to do what's best for the person. That's what, um, uh, what loving really entails is doing what's best for this person. And that's not just in the short run, it's for the long run as well. So um, anyway, so yeah, when it comes to the progressive Christianity, um, I think that there's a lot of these kind of assumptions that like, we come to know things based off of how we feel, we can choose to and by the way, I'm, I know I'm speaking broadly here because I know there's people sure, who disagree yeah. in, within progressive Christianity, but um, they'll say like, yeah, we can, um, you know, I don't like what Paul said about this. So mm -hmm. therefore, you know, it can't be inspired, you know, and that's like the exact wrong way to come <laughs> to your conclusions about God, right? Because if yeah. God can't contradict you, if your God's not big enough to contradict you and what you think, then you have a God that's too small and a God that's not really a God at all. It's really you. You know, um, it's mm -hmm. not God, it's just you and your views, uh, version of what you're creating, um, what you want God to be like. Yeah. And it sounds to me, even hearing you talk, it's, it's like, it sounds like for you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sounds like you weren't satisfied with basically believing that truth is subjective, that it's, yeah. it's relative because I, it's like, as I study the movement of progressive Christianity and, you know, not, to, not just to harp on that, but just look at different worldviews, the way people see the world, it seems like there's a lot of different specific worldviews, but they're really at, at the core bottom of it is like two. In fact, I think there was this video yeah. I watched with Peter Bogosian and uh, James Lindsay and a, and a pastor where they were talking about it like reality tunnels. You know, it's like we're not even in the same reality tunnel sometimes because you have this on one side of things, people saying like I think is, is what you're saying. 
is that you knew that there was truth. You knew that something could be known. There was something out there that was true about reality that you could know enough about to at least let the chips fall somewhere. And and you yeah. wanted to know what that was, uh, whether you like wanted to believe it or not. So you have like that side of things. And then there's the side of things, I think, where uh, people just sort of accept relativism as the default position. And that's what I see a lot in movements like this is they'll, even these new kind of uh, platforms I've seen in the last month or two where people are saying, hey, they're, they're operating under the presupposition that relativism is true. Whatever's true for you is true. I'll, I'll yeah. guide you through this journey to deconstruct from this construct of truth you were given and you can create Basically, I think what they're saying is you can kind of create your own reality because they're not going to challenge you on truth claims that you make. So they're going to guide you through. But the fundamental assumption underneath that is that truth is not objective, that you can create yep. that your own reality tunnel. And um, and that I think that's a dangerous viewpoint to have. And uh, so so. For people listening, give us, you know, I know you talk a lot about truth on your YouTube channel. Talk about the differences between subjective truth, you know, what we might call relativism, and then the opposite view, which is uh, objective truth, where we believe yep. that there there is something about reality that is true or false. Like if you believe the false thing, you're actually wrong, which of course yep. in postmodernism makes you hateful and bigoted and all that. That's why we, I think we keep going around in circles. But I wonder yep. if you'd comment on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So um, subjective truth basically means that it's dependent on human psychology, right? So it depends on so like, if I like um, chocolate or vanilla, you know, that it's true if I like vanilla more than chocolate, or chocolate more than vanilla, whatever. Um, it's true for me that that's the case, but that doesn't mean that it's true for everyone else. And so um, they, so basically the idea is more psychological rather than external, right? And so if it's objective truth, what that means is that it's independent of human psychology, it's still true. So um, this water bottle um, exists, whether you can see it or not, it's still on my desk right now, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what something objective is. Now, when it comes to what you said, I think you made a good point because um, what I find, and I, I try to dig up this in videos a lot too, um, but what I find is that these assumptions, these, these kind of, so um, the postmodern assumptions where culture's at right now are just assumed, they're axiomatic, which means they, they're not even argued for, they're just assumed, mm -hmm. right? And so because the assumption is that um, truth um, is, you know, the, uh, the assumption for most people today is that truth is actually just purely psychological, you know, then it follows naturally where you can come to all of these different conclusions, um, you know, even that you see in politics and everything else, you can come to all these different conclusions uh, because how people feel determines what's true then if that's the case, then nobody's going to even challenge that because they don't even stop to even think like, is that assumption true? Because it's so accepted, you know, it's like asking a fish what water's like, you know, mm -hmm. it's so accepted that like no questioning it. And so uh, what we see today is a lot of things that are being built off of these assumptions and um, people don't even have the tools or the ability or even the question uh, even start to question if these assumptions are true. And so because some of the assumptions are things like um, um, you have to look inside to see who you really are, you know, um, how you feel inside determines who you really are. And you shouldn't let anybody tell you how to live your life, um, you know, because in the end you need to 
look out for yourself and, um, you know, not let anybody tell you different, you know, and don't let anybody try to change you. And I mean, all of these sorts of things, there's so many of them too, Mm -hmm. but all of these things are just assumed. And then, so that's why it's, it's easy for progressive Christianity to take off in a postmodern culture Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't take off in a culture that's not postmodern. It just wouldn't because those assumptions aren't shared there. And so I think that's what is a big issue is when uh, we base the gospel off of these culture assumptions, um, then we've actually kind of missed the main, we, it's easy for us, in, in, in other words, to miss the main core message of the gospel because all of these definitions have changed and all of these assumptions are there. So I think that, um, by the way, there's a book called Misreading the Scripture Through Modern Eyes, I think it was, um, that kind of goes through some of these Western um Um, assumptions that we have too. So I think that can help some people who are watching as well too. But that's what I want to say is what's going on and why progressive Christianity is just assumed to kind of work with, with some, um, with some people. So what do you think is, I want, I want to, you know, it's a big question. I want to say, what do you think is the solution when you're, when you're talking with somebody who may not even realize that they've assumed this worldview of relativism, they, they're not really operating in the reality tunnel of objective truth. And of course, you know, it's easy to see how you can create a God in your own image when you're doing that. You can, you can slap the label Jesus on whatever kind of behavior you would do or what judgment you would make or a thing that you would teach. You can put the Jesus label on that because that Jesus becomes sort of this catch-all phrase for everything that you have decided is good and true for you. Um, What do you think is the best way to go about trying to open people's eyes to some of this? Because I think like when we're both, when you and I, we could disagree on something. I'm sure there's lots we disagree on, but we both are operating from the assumption that truth truth means something, that truth is telling it what you say if you're speaking the truth, what you say corresponds with reality. And I could be wrong yeah. about that on a certain point. You could be wrong on that on a certain point. But I feel like the conversation is easier to have because we both sort of agree on that fundamental principle that somebody can actually be wrong in this conversation. Yeah. So how do we right. how do we sort of open people's eyes to maybe an assumption they've made about the nature of truth that might be actually not truth? No, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one thing that doesn't work is just to tell them objective truth matters, right? Because yeah. that just doesn't work. It's not convincing because from their perspective, um, how they come to know what's true or not comes from how they feel inside or their experiences, that sort of thing, right? Or how um, even if they can relate to how other people feel, then they can say something true, you know, but if they can't relate to how those other people feel, then and it uh, I don't want to get too deep down that way. But anyways, so to answer your question, I think that the best way to to deal with it is that you have to show them the inconsistency within things that are very important to them. So take two things. Um, so kind of take the things that are important to um, them on an emotional level, which they have every um, desire to want to maintain. And then you want to show them how those are incompatible or at least to undesirable conclusions, because only then um, and this sort of like existential crisis that they'll have internally, only then will they begin to listen to you. And I found this in life over and over because you can try to reason with people in these ways where you have this like, I'm following the laws of logic here, you know, and all these yeah. sorts of things, but they're operating off of an entirely different set of assumptions. So you have to work within those assumptions um, first before you can start moving them over to a different set of assumptions. Yeah. So, um, like, and I didn't mention this earlier, but like for me, um, kind of going through a lot of stuff, one of the main um, reasons to that helped me not um, 
accept this kind of um, postmodernized Christianity um, or progressive Christianity was because um, I realized that I didn't like the fact that all of these other people were saying the same sorts of things and I didn't like their conclusions that they derived from it, you know? So like, for example, if a Muslim says that, Hey, I had, um, you know, so, um, based off of my experiences, you know, I should become a terrorist, right? You're like, I don't like that conclusion, but if I have the same set of rules, then it's not fair for me to say, Hey, you can't do that, but I can, you know, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the thing is like, I didn't want to accept a lot of the stuff that people were saying too. And that's what kind of pushed me to start looking at things more objectively too. Um, because then it's like, that's kind of that motivation. And I think that's the case with a lot of people. So I think what you want to do is you want to listen to where they're coming from. You don't want to just shut it down right away, of course, because these things are obviously true to them. It's going to take time for you to try to unpack this. So work within that, because this is what I see Paul doing and Jesus doing over and over in the Bible. They work with where people already are and then they'll show them how that doesn't lead to a favorable outcome for them. And mm -hmm. so that's like Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. Oh, you guys think you're good because you haven't cheated on your wife? Well, have you looked at a woman with lust? Okay, you committed adultery in your heart. You still broke the law, you know? And so yeah. like he's taking what's important to them and then showing them how it doesn't work in their favor. And so that's what I try to do a lot of on my channel as well. That's good stuff. And people can learn more by going to the What Do You Meme uh, YouTube channel. So many great videos. Uh, John has posted uh, just, he's a prolific YouTube content creator. So there's tons of videos on there. We're going to continue this conversation in the Patreon only subscriber portion. So if you don't know what that is, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. You can look at the different tiers. If you select tier two, you're going to get early access to my full length podcasts. If you select tier, I believe it's tier three, you get to be a part of a private Facebook group where you get to ask the questions that I ask our guests for our bonus content. Of course, uh, tier four will give you that bonus content. Tier five will give you all of those things I already mentioned, but you're also going to get an autographed copy of my new book, Another Gospel, plus a couple other goodies throughout the year. So definitely check out patreon.com slash Alisa Childers if you haven't already. John, as we close out this final portion of uh, final, of this segment here, uh, so for, for people who might be watching, how would you encourage them in their faith, particularly young people, I'm thinking, who, no. who have so many of these preconceived ideas about church, and some of them might even be true. They might have had a bad church experience. No. What would be your advice uh, for them today? Yeah, no, I'd say that um, you most likely, like we said earlier, you most likely probably had some sort of ne negative experiences with people or with the church, uh, Christians, and that sort of thing. But I want to encourage you that the truth of Christianity actually shows that we should expect that because mm. Christianity says that we're all sinners and we're all have this selfish nature where we want to elevate ourselves, which is why we um, look down on other people for things that they do, but we don't look down on ourselves for the things that we do. You know, um, we have this natural tendency to want to do that. And so that doesn't say anything about the truth of Christianity. Instead, I think it just confirms um, the, the truth of Christianity where people are sinners and we're all hypocrites and messed up in these different ways. And that's why we need a savior. So I think that understanding that problem first is what helps you to find the right solution to that problem. So hope that helps. That's good stuff. Well, I want to thank my guest, John McRae, for joining us on the podcast today. You can go to his YouTube channel, What Do You Meme? It's awesome. Check it out. If you are watching this on YouTube, please subscribe and click the bell icon to get notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, it really helps us out. If you leave us a great review, it helps get the message into the hands of more people. And we're so thankful 
helpful for you. And we will see you next time.